Hi, this is Alex Gove. And this is Connie Loises. And this is Strictly VC Download. Ooh, I love our opening music. Yeah, and it was free. Oh, that's great. Even better. (laughs) Welcome to our podcast. By way of introduction, Alex is my spouse and a former journalist, venture capitalist, and operator, though I know you hate that word a lot. The point is the two of us are launching the podcast to address demand. There are a lot of smart people out there who want to share their thought bubbles, and we love talking to them and learning from them, and we want to share these conversations with you. You can expect a new episode every Friday afternoon. Every episode will include a summary of the most important stories for that week. We'll also talk to a wide variety of guests about what's next. So let's get into this week's news. Let's Connie, do it. It seems like the big story this week was SoftBank. You wrote a pretty pointed piece about the investment conglomerate. Tell us about it. Sure. So, yes, I guess it was pointed. I should point out that it was about SoftBank's vision fund specifically, the investment arm of SoftBank that made a lot of noise when it rolled out the biggest fund ever raised with a targeted $100 billion in capital. I'm not sure exactly where it ended. I think somewhere around like $98 billion. But yes, the big story of the week for me, from my perspective, was that it lost another top lieutenant, Michael Ronan, uh, who was a former Goldman Sachs banker who joined SoftBank a few years ago, became one of its five U.S. managing partners, um, and he led some of the firm's transportation investments, including in Getaround, um, Neuro, Park Jockey. It's a big loss for SoftBank, but it's not the only one. According to Business Insider, Michelle Horn, a former McKinsey partner who joined SoftBank last year as its chief people officer, uh, has also left. She was just there for a year, maybe a little bit less than. And another SoftBank VC who I've interviewed in the past, David Thevenon, uh, quietly left in October. So that leaves at least three U.S. managing directors, but that's down considerably from five. And the line you see with all of these stories is these guys have left for other opportunities, which is surely the case in part. Uh, Ronan, for example, is going to be investing at least partly in Israeli startups from what I understand. And I don't think SoftBank invests in Israeli-based startups, so I'm not sure why or whether that's even intentional. Why do you think these stories about SoftBank are so popular? Do you think there's a, an element in Silicon Valley that delights in SoftBank's failure? Yes, I definitely do. SoftBank is, it's just fascinating. I mean, it really sucked all the air out of the room uh, when it came on the scene. It threw elbows. I mean, Bill Gurley has said specifically that it used its capital as a weapon, which seemed to be the case. Um, In fact, I talked to sources close to SoftBank when it was trying to secure its investment in Uber. And it basically, what I was hearing was, Uber better take our money because otherwise we are going to backlift uh, and and try to put Uber out of business. But I think also what's fascinating about what's happening here is it's sort of like a two-pronged thing. You know, the fact that it's deployed its capital in what seems like a very kind of reckless way, drenching young startups with too much capital and sort of expecting them to flourish rather than drown. WeWork uh, is obviously a prime example of a company that's, you know, was sort of run amok on SoftBank dollars. But there's also infighting from what I understand. I've had one source with knowledge of its inner workings describe it to me as a, quote, shit show. And can we say that? I think we can. I don't know. Maybe Apple will, <laughs> will, 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 will want it like that. But, you know, you might have seen that Bloomberg did a big story in late December about political rivalries, harassment, compliance issues inside the fund. In fact, 
I don't know if you happen to see, but uh, today the Wall Street Journal is reporting that activist investor Elliott Management has built a huge stake in SoftBank, $2.5 billion worth, and it wants to see some changes, including improved corporate governance. So that would directly impact the Vision Fund and the way that the Vision Fund is managed? I think so. Well, what's interesting is uh, Masa-san, the CEO, has a huge ownership stake in SoftBank, 22%. So it could be this sort of battle royale as, as uh, you know, I think Elliot often gets what it wants, but, you know, that stake is a powerful weapon, as the journal notes, to sort of fight back any activist campaign. So I think this is going to take some time to see how it plays out. Do you think there's an element of racism in any of this? An element of racism. Uh, that's a great question, actually. I know the answer to that. I mean, I, I do f- certainly think that there is this sense of other. This organization is highly untraditional. The fund is like nothing the world has ever seen before. Masa Sun's processes are unlike anything that you've seen before. I mean, I think they wanted to sort of compare themselves or become or beat KKR and Blackstone, for example. But I don't think those organizations are nearly as top down as SoftBank, where founders who the company might invest in have to go to Japan and meet with Masa-san and answer questions about, you know, how big their vision really is. Uh, I think the makeup of um, the SoftBank Vision Fund is also sort of very different. I think there's fewer traditional VCs than uh, maybe bankers and operators and people who are better with numbers. So I feel like in 2020, to a surprising uh, and disconcerting extent, what do you think? Well, I'm not sure if it's racist or not, but it does seem as if the Valley never really accepted Masa and delights in his failure. And the truth is he outmaneuvered many VC firms for a long time in realizing that he could accelerate the growth of his companies much more quickly than other folks out there. I think there was a, you know, an element of spray and pray, but he has been successful with uh, some of his investments, most notably Alibaba. So what happens now to the VC world if SoftBank goes away? Because a lot of these funds armed themselves with hundreds of millions of dollars in capital in order to keep up with SoftBank. Now, is that strategy, has that strategy failed? Will we go back to uh, an era in which uh, VCs are investing two to three million dollars in a first round? Yeah, I'd be really interested to see if the rounds shrink in size. VCs right now say that's not going to happen. And there is a lot of money out there already that's sort of sitting on the sideline and is waiting to be deployed because as Vision Fund was deploying so much capital, there was fundraising happening in tandem. So there are a lot of just gigantic funds and also a lot of non-traditional players came into the market, mutual funds, private equity uh, firms are spending more time circling around tech startups. So I think if that is the sort of ripple effect from all of this, it's going to take some time to manifest itself. Speaking of SoftBank, I hear that WeWork has a new CEO. Yes, it does. So this was, again, some great reporting out of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, last weekend, it uh, reported that WeWork had settled on Sandeep Mathrani, I think his name is. And he comes uh, sort of unsurprisingly from the world of real estate. I think he was a kind of retail mall turnaround specialist for many years. And he came most recently from Brookfield Properties, which is a huge company. It's got something like an $18 billion market cap. In any case, it's a little bit anticlimactic. Um, I mean, of course, it's it's a big deal that it's 
you know, WeWork CEO, but you know, the company was being promoted heavily as a tech company by ousted CEO, Adam Newman, who um, I interviewed a couple of years ago at a disrupt event, and who was really hammering that message home. And the company now has to kind of try to regain investors confidence, I think, by sort of communicating clearly that it is a real estate company, and it's focused on leasing space to other companies primarily. So he'll have a lot of work to do digging we work out of that uh, financial and reputational ditch it's in. So we wish him good luck. Yeah, he must be a real glutton for punishment for taking on this job because clearly the company was telling a story that nobody really could digest. The S1 was a seminal event in the history of of S1s. Well, you know, the whole thing is so fascinating to me. WeWork and SoftBank, there's just so many similarities there. But, you know, in both cases, people were asking questions all along. But when there's a lot of smart people who kind of buy into the visions of the the people leading the companies, you sort of start to second guess yourself. And you're like, okay, well, maybe, maybe WeWork is a company that could, you know, build up a meaningful sort of SaaS business. When I talked to Adam Newman, I remember specifically thinking, wow, this guy is really charming. I kind of understand why everybody's pouring uh, money into his pockets. Well, it's so strange because you and I have both lived through a bubble and we, you know, we've been on both sides of it. And after the last bubble, we swore we'd never get fooled again. And yet, right. sure enough, along comes another charlatan who was such a megalomaniac that even Massa couldn't keep up with him. <laughs> well, I don't know. Charlatan seems a little harsh, but I mean, I think he was kind of, you know, he was drinking his own Kool-Aid um, and nobody was stopping him just as sort of, you know, nobody was saying a no to Massa's son. So I think, you know, especially when the, the two came together, it was just sort of like a, sort of a combustible situation. So uh, speaking of megalomaniacs, I know that you've been very interested in what's been happening with Tesla this week, which I have to say I haven't followed very closely, except to be taken aback by the headlines. What happened? Well, it's really been a crazy week for Tesla. The company is now worth more than all of the automakers in Detroit combined, and its stock has been skyrocketing in excess of 20%, driven in some part by a crunch that is hitting short sellers, as well as the realization among a lot of people that Tesla really is much further ahead of a lot of car makers in the electric space than than it had previously been thought. But why this week? Why did it go bananas this week specifically? I think it's been driven by the company radically improving its profits. And when one applies a tech growth multiple to those numbers, the Tesla stock can seem to be undervalued. Still. Yeah. And and this is all in spite of what's happening in China, which was also a big driving factor for the growth in Tesla stock. Now Tesla has to slow down those expansion plans because of what's going on with the virus. Well, one way or the other, the stock chart price looks like the outline of the Matterhorn this week. I have a visual right now of Elon Musk dressed in lederhosen yodeling on the mountainside. And on that somewhat disturbing note, that's the news for this week. And now, more free music.
This week's episode, sponsored by Saster, the world's largest non-vendor B2B software community. It's hosting its annual conference on March 10th, 11th, and 12th at the San Jose Convention Center. The three-day conference will bring together more than 15,000 global SaaS founders, executives, and VCs for a series of high-quality content sessions and networking opportunities. Across five stages, more than 300 SaaS leaders will share their hard-earned learnings and actionable insights to help you scale up and grow your company faster. Readers can grab 20% off last chance tickets by going to sasterannual.com forward slash buy hyphen tickets question mark promo equals strictly VC 20 or just read the newsletter. Look for the ad and click through the link. I'm going there right now. Thank you. (laughs) Welcome back. Every week we plan to interview a mover and shaker in the news this week's interview subject is none other than Connie Loises, founder and editor-in-chief of Strictly VC. Connie, welcome to Strictly VC Download. <laughs> Thank you, Alex, for having me on your show. <laughs> well, actually, it's our show. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you about Strictly VC because people often ask me about what you do, and I'd love to have some way to quickly update them on how you put together the newsletter. Can you can we go back to 2013? What was it that made you start Strictly VC? Well, let me tell you, it's a fascinating story. <laughs> really simply, I think like a lot, lot of people who end up starting things, it was sort of born of some frustration. I sort of felt like I was missing a product that I wanted to read. I was working at the time for Reuters, and we had this newsletter that we put out daily, but it sort of addressed both the private equity and venture capital markets. And I worked closely with a guy who I'm very fond of to this day, Dan Primack, who had left to go to Fortune. And when he left, the newsletter became increasingly PE-focused. And so, uh, as you might recall, I was complaining a lot to you about it on a daily basis. And at some point you said, please stop talking about this. Just do your own newsletter. And so I did. And it was harder to get going than I thought. Although, thankfully, you know, in retrospect, I'm glad I started it when I did. I, I think I'd probably been thinking about launching it for like a, you know, more than a year before I actually met with a lawyer and incorporated the company. But obviously the newsletter landscape is now incredibly crowded. But by the time that sort of happened, I think I'd built a readership, thankfully, and it's grown completely organically. I mean, I think there's a lot that I could be doing to accelerate its growth. But frankly, I'm very thankful that people, you know, are always referring friends to the newsletter. And it's, you know, been growing constantly over the last five years, six years, seven years, almost. Do you have a, an image of the reader that you're serving? Is there a mental picture you have in mind of the person who's reading Strictly VC? Well, I did. That's an interesting question. I mean, initially, I guess I sort of imagined it was all the VCs who I knew who all were sort of very similar, you know, mostly Silicon Valley based, certain sort of background. The really amazing thing is I can see the readership changing because I have these events, as you know, two to three times a year as time allows. And I've just seen the readers change so much uh, and in really exciting ways. People from, you know, all kinds of backgrounds, many more women. I think my first event, my sister had come to help me from Washington, D.C., where she's an attorney. And she was pretty appalled that the entire audience was made up of men. And also the speakers were largely men. And that's changed dramatically over the years. I'd say, you know, at least half of the readers now are women, which is great. 
And there's readers from all over the world. I think it's probably around 50 to 60% are still in California. Uh, but there's a big readership in the UK, a growing number of readers in India, China, and elsewhere, which is really gratifying. Do you think that speaks to the fact that venture capital has become such a big booming business these days and funds are increasingly much larger than they used to be and are much more visible to the general public? It seems like people now are very, very aware of venture capital and in, in ways that they previously weren't. Absolutely. I used to talk to VCs and they would say, oh, you know, you know, somebody, my neighbor didn't know what a VC was for the longest time. They thought I was a dentist. But I also think VCs become so much more accessible in a way. It's not just that the funds have gotten larger and um, in tandem have sort of grown their number of staff, but so many more people have either jumped into VC or want to jump into VC. And for good reason, because startups now are being founded all over the world. And I think you always have an advantage if you're you know, on the ground and close to the startups that are springing up around you. Do you think C- VCs are much more media savvy than they used to be? Yes, to a nauseating extent. <laughs> no, actually, I mean, I, I like everyone else, I get sort of tired of seeing VC blogs. And, and in fact, early on, I decided not to take guest submissions just because I think I would be sort of overwhelmed by them. But honestly, I also find it very aggravating how smart and skilled a lot of VCs are in their writing. It's very aggravating to me when somebody's just as good a writer as they are an investor. I feel like that's sort of unfair, but I, I also really appreciate their insights oftentimes. It seems that in addition to blogs, VCs also have podcasts. So They have podcasts, they have medium posts, they are everywhere. What makes an interesting story for you if a VC is reaching out to you or if someone in PR is trying to get your attention, what really grabs you? We, as reporters, get asked this constantly, and it's really hard to articulate what makes a good story other than, you know, it's sort of like in any field, you develop pattern recognition and you just know what's interesting when you see it. It's oftentimes because of a founder's background or some, you know, hard scrabble story. But honestly, I think the best stories come out of not being pitched, but just sort of taking a step back and trying to see what all these sort of different data points are pointing toward, which is not easy. It's not easy uh, for anybody. It's really, it's hard for me working on the newsletter every day to sort of take the time to be thoughtful. I think I've done some great reporting in the past. Sometimes I wish I had more time to do deeper analysis. But for example, on Monday, I'm going to be publishing a story on what's happening to the many thousands of startups that are sort of going nowhere fast, which nobody talks about. We cover uh, in my other job at TechCrunch, fundings all the time, and it's exciting when companies are gaining momentum. But of course, many of them will stop gaining momentum at some point and become unfundable, or they won't reach that escape velocity that venture capitalists like to talk about so much. And so what happens to them? So I'm going to be diving into that, having talked to a handful of uh, top investors this past week to discuss some of the likely outcomes for a lot of these companies. Yeah, that's interesting, because uh, I remember in my day, uh, as a reporter. Alex and I met, in fact, at the Red Herring magazine, which was sort of the tech crunch of the late 90s. Yeah. And I remember many entrepreneurs would contact me with what they thought would be interesting stories about new product updates and iterations to their product or people that they hired. And they didn't have any sense of how that played into a, a larger picture. And mm-hmm. context is key. When you're pitching somebody, you have to tell a bigger story that will mean something to a broader audience. Right, right, right. Put it into some context. What is the most surprising thing that you've 
discovered about running your own business? Well, I will say that I'm much more empathetic as a reporter than I once was. Covering founders for so many years, I would hear about these ups and downs, and I wasn't terribly sympathetic. I thought, oh, you know, they were sort of, you know, it was a manufactured drama. But having lived it myself uh, with this newsletter, I get it. You know, I have a successful event, and I'm excited, and then maybe I'm not happy with the product for some reason, or, you know, there's some sort of something that is less positive and I you know I feel that deeply too when it's your own kind of you know baby it's much more impactful than I would have imagined before I did this speaking of babies are you surprised that people are so interested in our kids and dog <laughs> you you mention them infrequently and yet seems like you get some of the most feedback about our kids it's or dogs. It's true. It's true. Well, I think, thankfully, people are much more focused on work-life balance than they ever were. And I think they understand that people who work also have lives and often children, uh, significant others, sort of barky dogs. I remember my much-beloved mother-in-law sort of warning me early on that, you know, if I talk too much about the kids, it might be perceived as a mommy blog. And I appreciated her concern, but I told her then, I said, I am this person with children and I'm going to talk about people. I mean, I'm going to talk about them. And if people don't want to read the newsletter because of that, then they can pound sand. Well, we promise to have our kids as guests in the future. (laughs) But for now, thank you, Connie, for being our guest. And (laughs) next week, we promise to have someone from outside of our house as a guest. (laughs) Thanks, everyone.